Um, so first of all, Tawnishta, thank you very much for joining us this morning for the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, before I hand you over to our students, I'm just going to throw a couple of quick fire questions at you. So just one word answers. Uh, so lemon or lime? Uh, lime. <laughs> Sweet or savory? Uh, savory. Um, invisible or the ability to fly? Oh God, the ability to fly, definitely. And if you were marooned on a desert island, but you could have two things, any two things you want, what would you bring with you? Uh, a boat and a sail, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and Pepsi or Coke? Um, Coke, actually. Thank you very much. Uh, so what I'm going to do is hand you over now to uh, four of our politics and society students in sixth year. We have Nicole, Nora, Shri, and Rachel. So I'll hand you over to them, and Great. they can take Thanks it from here. Much. I'm delighted to be here, by the way. Good morning and welcome to Alex in a Pod. Today we're delighted to invite Tanishta and Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Simon Coveney. Thank you so much for being with, uh, being with us here today. You. Can you tell us a little bit about the objectives of the aid program to India? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the main bulk of our aid program is on the continent of Africa. Um, and that's because we have long historic links. But we are now expanding the aid program to other parts of the world. Um, uh, and uh, I think increasingly we will be uh, working with, with NGOs in India. Um, uh, and mainly, I think, uh, it will be around uh, gender and um, uh, a response to, uh, to extreme poverty. Um, but India is, is a very different country to many of the, the other uh, countries that we have aid programs in because in itself it's quite a wealthy country. Um, uh, the political relationship we have with, with the Indian government is quite good. Uh, and so I think um, uh, the focus of our, of our aid in the future will really be uh, about a partnership um, uh, uh, with um, state actors in, in India, as well as, of course, funding um, NGOs as well. Thank you. So what, in your opinion, is the current field most in need of improvement in relation to the aid programme? Um, well, I mean, a country the size of Ireland can't do everything for everybody. So we've got to prioritise in areas uh, where we're credible uh, um, so that we can focus resources on making the maximum impact. So, you know, Ireland for a long time uh, has been involved in education. Uh, and in particular, in recent years, is very involved in education for girls, uh, which we think can have a huge impact uh, across Asia and in particular across Africa. Um, and, and that is why we have actually already committed uh, 250 million euros to, to education uh, over the next few years uh, with a big focus on education for girls, uh, trying to get more young girls into education, keep them in education, uh, and change attitudes uh, in, in countries that are, that are often uh, frustrating um, progress in that area. So I think that is a big area. I think uh, one of the big new uh, um, aid program policy areas where there hasn't been a huge amount of focus in the past, but there certainly will be in the future, will be in climate. Um, so um, you know, you'll see a big focus, I think, on uh, sustainable food production systems, uh, not just about producing food that is good for nutrition uh, purposes, but also food that is produced in a way uh, that takes account of uh, emissions management and the need for climate action. Um, 
The other area where we haven't had a lot of focus before has been uh, what I call the blue economy, uh, which is coastal communities, sustainable fishing. It's an area that I'm personally very interested in and Ireland has a, quite a lot of know-how on. So I think you will see us working with governments and with uh, local communities uh, on more sustainable ways of feeding themselves uh, by managing fish stocks in a more sustainable way in the future, whether they be on small island states or coastal communities. Um, so there, there's some new areas that, um, that we're working on, but a big focus on climate, uh, gender and education. And on a slightly separate note, I suppose, considering a recent spread of misinformation in the lead-up to, say, the Brexit and Trump campaigns, yeah. in relation to social media, do you think there's a need to regulate freedom of speech to minimise the spread of misinformation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a distinction that needs to be made between freedom of speech and freedom to spread false information. You know, and, and I think this, this is a, an area that's often blurred. Uh, in my view, we do need to regulate social media. Um, um, I don't think it's acceptable that, that, that people can be anonymous and spreading lies, uh, or can demonize people, uh, can character assassinate, uh, and do it under an anonymous pseudonym. Um, I think that uh, if we allow that into the future, uh, well then, you know, a, a, and at the same time are regulating mainstream media, if you like, in terms of broadcast media and print media, uh, we are essentially uh, allowing a situation where uh, people can be misled and lied to uh, without any consequence um, from the state. Uh, but trying to get the balance right between the use of technology, uh, access to information easily and freely, uh, free speech uh, and a free media and protecting vulnerable people from either bullying or false information is quite a different, a difficult balancing act to get right and I'm not sure any country in the Western world has got that right yet but certainly I think more and more people and I think your generation uh, are going to demand answers here from, from regulators and policy makers uh, in a way that, um, that is much more comprehensive than what's been done to date. Okay, and again, to change the topic slightly, recently there has been a rise in discriminatory views expressed by the general public. In your opinion, why do you think this behaviour is on the rise? And what do you think about the current experience of minorities within Ireland? Um, well, first of all, on the last question, I hope that minorities in Ireland feel safer and more welcome than they do in many other countries. Uh, that hasn't always been the case, by the way. You know, if you were gay in Ireland, uh, if, you were teen if you were a teenager with a, uh, an unwanted pregnancy in Ireland, um, if you had a different skin colour in Ireland in the past, uh, you would have stood out a lot more than you do today. I remember that very well because when I was a young child, we used to foster children as a family and we, we fostered a young boy from Nigeria when I was six or seven years of age and he was more or less the same age as me. And I can remember walking down Patrick Street, which is the main street in Cork City, holding his hand. And, and it's, it's one of the few things I remember about his time. His name was Francis. Uh, and literally, people were sort of parting the ways in front of us because they'd never seen a young black child in Ireland before. And this was in the 70s, late 70s. Uh, yet at the same time, we were putting a lot of money into aid programs in Africa and so on. So now I drop my kids to school and, you know, I see 
Muslim children. Uh, um, uh, I see different skin color. Um, you know, we all eat both Indian food and Chinese food and Asian food. Um, so I think Ireland is a more tolerant, multicultural, cosmopolitan place than it's been. Um, but I think we need to try to manage that so that in the future we keep it that way. Uh, and the, the debates around migration, radicalization, terrorism and linking those things, even though it's often totally inappropriate to do it, uh, is I think a big, big challenge, not just for Ireland, but for the EU as a whole. Uh, and I was talking about some of those things earlier, I think, when I was talking to you. Um, and the rise of terrorism across the European Union linked to radicalization has, I think, shaken politics uh, in a way that, it's, uh, uh, that has driven right-wing thinking, uh, in a way that's very unhealthy. Uh, and uh, we need to counteract that. Um, uh, and we're trying to. Um, and, you know, recent debates in Ireland linked to finding accommodation for asylum seekers. Like, I think a lot of that response from the public is, is based on misinformation and ignorance. Some of it is based on racism, but most of it, I think, is based on real ignorance. And there are some that are trying to take advantage of that and stoke up those prejudices. Um, and people like me need to be very firm and very clear in response to that. Um, you know, Ireland, Ireland is a is a nation of migrants, you know, both all over the world and here. Um, and uh, of all countries, we should understand why people are driven to migration uh, and why they should be treated in a humane and fair and generous way, um, as well as a way that has structure, by the way. You know, and we can't have a complete open door policy, but we do need to be, to be generous when it comes to migration from my perspective. Thank you. So another little switch in topic. Uh, no worries. Much apologies. So as you know, there's been a lot of anxiety surrounding a possible border up at the north. Um, if there were to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic as a result of Brexit, would you instead support the idea of a united Ireland? Yeah, well, that's a... I know, pretty, a pretty loaded question. That's a, lo that's a loaded question, yeah. yeah. So, so first of all, I have spent most of my time in the last two years making sure that a border between North and South is not, as in a physical border, uh, is not the consequence of Brexit. Mm -hmm. And I think we've achieved that. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can get the current withdrawal agreement through or any alternative withdrawal agreement that may be on offer would also achieve that. And I think we've worked really hard to create an understanding across the European Union as to why physical border infrastructure re-emerging on the island of Ireland would be a really bad thing. Not just for trade, but actually in the context of tension and potential violence um, uh, and an undermining of the peace process. So, so we've won that argument. Um, and I think we have a deal with Boris Johnson and we had a deal previously with Theresa May. And if there's a Jeremy Corbyn uh, prime minister in the future, we'll get a deal with him too. Uh, to, to avoid that. Uh, I think that's unlikely, but, you know, if, if it happens. Um, because I think the EU really understands this issue now. They've taken the time. I think 17 foreign ministers have chosen to come and actually visit the border themselves, which is an amazing interest. You know, like, if you come from Malta or Cyprus or Slovenia, you know, this is a problem a long, long way away. And uh, yet they've shown the interest... Uh, and the solidarity to come and really understand it. So it's, it's, it's been really a reinforcer for me of what EU membership is all about. But the, but the question you ask around a border poll, in my view, if we were forced into 
putting physical border infrastructure in place to protect the EU single market. I think that would force a debate on a border poll um, happening far sooner than it otherwise might. I think that's true. Um, I'm a nationalist. Uh, I'd like to see the reunification of this island someday. But I'm also a realist. Uh, and I want to see that happen in a way that is managed and controlled and in a way that can reassure the unionist community that they don't have anything fundamental to fear from that. They mightn't like it, of course, but that they certainly won't be discriminated against as a minority, that they will have a place and their Britishness will have a place in the new Ireland. Um, and I think if we force a Brexit, sorry, if we force a border poll uh, and a United Ireland debate in the middle of trying to solve Brexit, in the middle of not having an executive that functions or a government that functions in Northern Ireland, uh, we are adding you know, fuel to what, are, what, what is already a very difficult uh, and very heated discussion and negotiation uh, and political environment in Northern Ireland. So we've said now is not the time to call for a border poll, but we certainly understand the sentiment behind it. Um, but let's get the issue that's currently live resolved first. And then the Good Friday Agreement is, is, uh, is very clear in terms of how it can deal with aspirations for a united Ireland in the future. Um, but we've got to bring people with us. We can't simply switch from having a historical situation where nationalists and Catholics in a minority have been discriminated against to in the future, you know, unionists, Protestants um, and other minor uh, and minority groups in Northern Ireland would be discriminated against. That's not good enough. We need to learn lessons from the past. Everybody has got to feel safe and secure and home uh, in Ireland, whether you, feel to be, whether you feel British or Irish in Northern Ireland, and you have a right to be both. Um, so that transition, uh, perhaps to a reunification in the future, has got to be managed, I think, in a delicate way. And we are putting quite a lot of thought quietly as a government at the moment in terms of how we can manage that discussion in a responsible way in the future. Thank you for answering honestly. I know it's a very politically charged question. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no worries. Great. Oh, we have one more. Good. Okay. <laughs> um, so, a simple question. What's your preferred result from the UK general election oh, on God. December 12th? <laughs> well, I tend not to get involved in, in elections in other countries. So, um, look, I mean, I think British politics is very confused at the moment. Um, and... So I'm, you know, I'm not going to answer that question directly because I don't think it's, it's fair for me to take a side. Uh, what I can say is you know, if Boris Johnson wins, we have a deal with him, and I think we'll see it through. And then we'll move on to the next phase of Brexit and try and get a good deal there as well. Uh, if Jeremy Corbyn or somebody else leads the next government, uh, they're looking for a very different type of deal. In my view, it's a more attractive deal probably. That alternative deal it would be probably a much softer Brexit. It may involve the UK staying permanently in the EU Customs Union. Uh, and it'll, it, it may involve asking the British people again 
if they really want to leave. Okay, um, so that brings us to the also end of our November podcast. Um, so How amazing was that? It's that's pretty good. Nice. Yeah, that's if, nice. If it's, if, uh, if, yeah, if so it's not a Boris Johnson win. Was, uh, um, so I think we can live with either, who, to be honest. Um, was interviewed um, by a group of our position won't change. We want the closest possible very relationship between stuff, Britain and Ireland very in the future, news, despite Brexit. Opinions, and we will look to negotiate that with Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. It's very good. So who wins the election. I mean, at the moment, it looks like the Conservatives are going to win. Black Friday, That's today. So are we all two weeks is a long time in an election campaign. Thought about it. Thank you. So you are. Thanks very much. Thank you. I do. So that thank you so much, Tonisha, for giving up your time for our podcast this morning. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks, many. A